Now, our Holy Father, we thank you that we can approach you in the merits of the Messiah, the one who knew no sin, who became sin for us, that you would grant us by grace in your hesed the very righteousness of Christ. We bless you, our Father, for such a new standing. Thank you that you told us we can come boldly to a throne of grace to find help in time of need. And we worship you in the Spirit and through your Son, and we thank you that you've made all things new, that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, and that when you saved us and redeemed us, that you secured us for heaven, that you gave us the Spirit as an earnest who bears witness to us that we become children of God. For those, Father, here who do not have that confirmation, who do not understand the gospel, may today... You speak to them as the Spirit alone can open their eyes and draw men to Himself. May today they see the wonder of the cross that we've sung of. We come and with the psalmist we tremble at Your Word. We ask that this Word which You said is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path would illumine our soul, that we would understand more about who You are, that we might worship You in spirit and in truth that we might obey you more passionately and fully, that Jesus the Lord might be glorified. Father, today come and strengthen me in my weakness. I can do nothing without you, but with you all things are possible. So use this message, I pray, for my own edification and for all those who will listen. I ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Take God's word this morning, would you, and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 14. We are in a chapter-by-chapter chapter study of this great book, the revelation of Jesus Christ given to the apostle John, who records, he says, these words for us, that is his bondservants, so we can understand many topics and many dimensions of Christ and what he is like, and today is something about the coming judgment of God. And we live in a day when many, even Christians, have much misinformation about this judgment. But I hope you understand that a day is coming when all the dreams and schemes that men have sold their souls for are going to turn to rust and mold and corruption. The only thing that will last is heaven, God's people, and the living God created also the angels that He made and created. But there is coming a time, not just of heaven, which we're going to study in great detail, because more detail is given about heaven in this book than any book in all of the Scripture, but we're also going to learn of some things that will precede heaven, and it's the eternal judgment of God. And here in the 14th chapter, the Apostle John is really giving us a sneak preview of things to come. The book of Revelation in many ways is found as the last book in our Bible, but it is indeed the conclusion to the Bible. And as you study it, it will certainly capture your attention, it will broaden your imagination, it will uh, deepen your understanding of heaven, but it will also sober you concerning the judgment that is going to come. The term revelation, apocalypsis, and so some of our English Bibles doesn't say the revelation, it says the apocalypse, and that's okay. It's just a direct transliteration, but the word apocalypsis, apocalypse, means an unveiling, and that's what the revelation is. It's an unveiling. But I find it rather ironic in that while this book is made to uncover and to unveil primarily the person of Christ, 
In many ways, it's the most closed book and the most mysterious book to people, to God's people. And one of the reasons is because they do not understand the role that Israel will play at the end of time, that God is not done with the Jewish people, that as He used them to bring about the first coming, He will use them to bring about His second coming. But the second reason, and in many ways the primary reason, is because there's so much of the Old Testament woven like a beautiful mosaic all the way through this book. There are over 300 references to the Old Testament. Some would say six or 700, and I could say, well, here's a verse in this gospel, but it's repeated in these two, and you could count them as three. But there's basically 300 unique, specific references out of the 404 verses found in the Revelation that come or allude directly from the Old Testament. And if we don't understand the Old Testament, as the first century believer did, because for many, that's all they had. The New Testament was not written. Of course, by the time the Revelation is written in 95 AD, it's the capstone. It's the last book that God inspires. But if you were Jewish and you grew up or you were a Gentile convert, the only book you had growing up was the Old Testament Scriptures. And so, never once does John say, well, the apostle uh, Isaiah said, or the uh, prophet Isaiah said, or the prophet Daniel said, or he never once does that. He just basically cites the Old Testament. And so, it's important that we understand the Old Testament to understand the revelation. And of course, half the problem for the interpreter is that many interpret the book of Revelation differently than they do the Old Testament. The Old Testament is to be taken at face value, and unless something is said to be a symbol or an allegory, we are to interpret it in its historical, plain grammatical context. And that's how those in the early church interpreted the Revelation. Now, here we are in the 14th chapter. We want to begin in the 14th verse where we left off. So I hope you've brought a Bible. If you don't have one, you might want to come to meet the pastor this evening. Revelation 14, beginning now in verse 14. Then I looked... Behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Now let's start by setting the broad context of our passage because any text without a context is a pretext. And if you ignore the context, it's very easy to come up with a false interpretation, not to mention you will miss the richness of what's being said. Yes, John 3.16 
can be understood as a standalone verse, but you miss the richness of that verse if you don't know John 3, verses 14 and 15 that precede it. And then the verse just comes alive for you, and yet most people don't know those verses. So context is very, very important. And quite honestly, as a pastor, I get a little nervous when someone comes up to me and says, well, God told me. Because sometimes what God supposedly told them is not consistent with what God has revealed in the Bible. And sometimes I think Christians do this because they don't have a good spiritual self-image. And they want to make it like they have some direct hotline to God. But may I remind you what the prophet Jeremiah said, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? If you're going to put your trust in anything, put it in the written Word of God. So when you ask them, well, how do you know that God spoke to you? Was it some form of auto-suggestion or... And very often they'll say, well, you know, the, the Spirit spoke to me. Or sometimes they'll say, God gave me a vision. Listen, the Bible says, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Now, God's Word never contradicts God's will. And so it's important that you look at the context because the way God speaks today is through His written Word. That's not to say that He can't prompt you to follow some dimension of His written Word, but He speaks through the written Word of God. And so when you hear someone say, hey, I've got a word from God, I hope they're saying that it came out of the Bible. And don't say, God gave me a revelation. That's poor theology. God isn't giving any new revelation. The canon of scriptures, we'll see when we come to the end of this book, is closed. Now, God may give you an illumination of something that he already inspired. So some Christians, again, they're sloppy and the way they approach the Bible in finding God's will. They're like the man who's just scanning through the Bible, trying to find the will of God. And as he fans through the pages with his eyes closed, he stops and he points at a verse and it says, Judas went out and hung himself. Ooh, that didn't go over well. And so he scans a little more with his eyes closed and he points again and he comes across another verse, go therefore and do likewise. Well, now he's really nervous and he scans again and he points a third time and he comes to another verse, what you do, do it quickly. Listen, now that's all Bible. Those are three direct verses from the Word of God, but that's playing fast and loose with the Word of God. So this is the reason to be both accurate and helpful that I set the broad and immediate context each week. And it helps you too to learn the book so that when we're done with the revelation, you'll be able hopefully to think your way all the way through it. Now, if you remember the divine outline, which God gave, and he didn't do that with many books, but he did it with this book, and it's so important that he did because it keeps us from getting confused. It's found in Revelation 1.19. Therefore, write the things which you have seen. That's the past. That's chapter 1 as he records the vision of the glorified Christ. Write the things which are, that's the present, that's chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches, and the things that will take place, metatata, after these things, that's the future. So starting in chapter 4, all the way through chapter 22, we have a vision of the future. In chapters 4 and 5, we find ourselves in the very throne room of God. And we read in Revelation 4, 1, after these things, metatata, same two words, same three words in English, I looked... And behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, 
And I will show you what must take place after these things. So John is caught up into heaven. We call this the rapture from the Latin Bible, the catching up of the church, and he's brought in through an open door. It's what Paul calls the blessed hope when he writes to Titus. And so in chapter 4, we find ourselves in the very throne room of God. And in chapter 4, we read in chapter 4 and verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Now, there are three visions of the throne room of God in the Bible, one in Daniel, one in Isaiah, and one here in the Revelation. And they are all identical with one exception. Here there are 24 elders that are representative of the body of Christ, that church that has been caught up, and I hope you're a member of that church. I hope you're a member of the universal body of Christ that when Jesus comes, you'll be caught up with these 24 elders. And then we come into the fifth chapter, and we see the Lord Jesus described in two ways. One is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, And he takes from the right hand of the Father the seven-sealed scroll. And we saw that seven-sealed scroll was God's title deed to the earth. That which Jesus purchased will become his. In Psalm 110, that prophesies of the Messiah that his enemies will be made his footstool will become a reality. But not only is he the lion of the tribe of Judah, he is also called in the fourth chapter the lamb slain because he is the one who offers himself in our place for our sin, but also as the lamb standing because he's resurrected and he is victorious and he is able to pay for that sin. So then when you come to the sixth chapter, there's a watershed of sorts. There's a real turning point because in chapters 6 through 18, we see those days described of unprecedented judgment that will come upon the earth. In chapter 6, the the scene shifts to the earth, and it really answers the question, what will be going on during the time that the church has been caught up in heaven? And he begins through three sets of judgments to describe the coming wrath that is going to take place. And they come in sevens. There's sevens all the way through the book, as this next chart reminds us. You can see here that uh, after the rapture of the church is a short period of time. It's not revealed to us, probably weeks, days, maybe even hours before the one world leader steps on the scene and a seven-year period begins to unfold. At the start of that seven-year period, there are seven sealed judgments that come. We saw in the first four, the first uh, four representing the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the fifth seal that was broken, represented all those people who are being martyred, and then the sixth seal, some cosmic changes. And then with each of these sets of seven, between six and seven of the seals, six and seven of the trumpets, six and seven of the bowls, there is a a pause in the narrative, not in the action, but in the narrative to allow us to look back to either see what God has been doing during this time, or sometimes to give us a sneak preview to prepare us for what is yet to take place. And so between seals 6 and 7, you find Revelation chapter 7, where we are introduced to 144,000 Jewish men from the 12 tribes of Israel who are called of God to preach the gospel. 
When we come to this 14th chapter, we meet them again, and they are described as those who follow Jesus, who keep the commandments of God. Listen, if you're following Jesus, you'll do what these men did, will you not? Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. If you're following Christ, you're fishing for men. If you're not fishing for men, it doesn't matter what you're doing, how many Bible studies you may attend, or whether you serve in this way or that. If you're not fishing for men, you're not following Jesus. These men are fishing for men. It's the call on every born-again believer. Some are gifted in that way. All are called to share the gospel. As you go, it doesn't say do discipleship. That has been a misapplied, misunderstood verse only, I suppose, in the last 50 years or so. As you go, make converts, not do discipleship. Make converts, make believers. Now, you should do discipleship, and there's various expressions in which that happens. Is everyone uses their gift together, we're able to make an impact. Some are here on Sunday, and they're serving, and some are encouraging, and some are showing mercy, and some are organizing, and there are many gifts, and they all work together. That's part of the process of discipleship, one body, a variety of gifts. But we're all called to be responsible in trying to win people to Jesus. And so we see that between the sixth and seventh seal. If you remember, the seal judgments can be seen only one at a time. But when the seventh seal is open, in the seven seals are contained seven trumpets, just like in the seventh trumpet are contained seven bowls. And we've seen that when the seventh seal is open, you can see all the trumpets. And not only can you see all the trumpets, because in the seventh trumpet are seven bowls, you can see all the bowl judgments. And when they see it, there's silence in heaven for 30 minutes. It just takes people's breath away. And so we studied in chapters 8 and 9, those first six trumpets, and then between the the seventh and the eighth trumpet, there's once again a, a pause in the action, and that's chapters 10 through 14. And it's very important that we see what happens. That's where we are. That's the section we're in right now. Of course, the event that triggers the opening of the seventh seal that brings the trumpet and bold judgments is something we've seen called the abomination of desolation. We've studied it already. We'll look at it again. When the Antichrist goes into a rebuilt third temple that will be there on the Temple Mount, and he will make himself out to be God. And when that event happens... Look out, because the world is going to see an expression of God's wrath like they could never, ever imagine. And so this seven-year period by the prophet Daniel, by the Lord Jesus, by the apostle Paul, and by the apostle John is divided into two equal halves, three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days, describing these two halves of the great tribulation. So when you come to the trumpet judgments, as you look on this chart, between trumpets 6 and 7 are found chapters 10 through 14. Not yet, not quite there yet. Chapters 10 through 14. If you remember in the 10th chapter, we saw the angel in his little book. 
Then in the 11th chapter, we saw these two witnesses whom I suggested to you was Moses and Elijah. Now, I wouldn't spill blood over that. I wouldn't break fellowship over it. I could be wrong. But we know there are two witnesses who are coming. We also know, because Malachi tells us and Jesus affirms it, that Elijah is coming again before the great and terrible day of the Lord, that he is going to return. And these two men have identical witness ministries to that of Moses and Elijah, not to mention when they're on the Mount of Transfiguration, they are in discussion over the coming unfolding of this kingdom with the Lord Jesus. Then, of course, there's an announcement in 1115 where the seventh trumpet is blown, and you'd think, okay, here come the bowls. But there's kind of a double parenthesis, and you don't see the actual trumpet unfold until you come to chapter 16. Chapter 15 is just an introduction to 16. It tells us the bulls are coming, and then in chapter 16, you see it. And so once that is done, then we are introduced to seven key persons who are functioning during the time of the Great Tribulation, as this next chart shows. We saw the woman, who is a picture of the nation of Israel. The dragon, the Bible tells us, is the devil. The male child is the Christ, the Messiah. Michael, he's called the archangel. The rest of her children, that is the Jews who believe who listen to what Jesus said, and they flee to the wilderness that they might be protected. Uh, those are the rest of the children. Then we learned of the beast out of the sea. He's called the Antichrist. And then the second beast, the beast out of the earth called the false prophet. That brings us to where we are today. Look into your text in chapter 14. The chapter opens is where John is being given a vision. And again, once again, we see all 144,000 Jewish evangelists. And God has protected and preserved them and did not lose a single one. But then if you notice, beginning in verse 6, we saw three angels who are called by God to preach three messages that men and women might repent. Now, please understand, this is the church age, and angels aren't preaching right now. It's obvious that God is using people who have been redeemed by blood to preach the gospel during this time. And so an angel dispatches Philip to preach to an Ethiopian eunuch. An angel tells Cornelius where he can hear the gospel through the apostle Peter. But the angel doesn't tell the gospel to Cornelius. He just tells him where he can find it. And today in the history of the church, without a single exception, every time a so-called angel has preached, it hasn't been one of God's angels, it's been a demon. And so you have cults that have been started by demon angels like Mormonism and many other groups. But things change after this seven-year period begins. It's not Gentiles who are primarily sharing the gospel as it is today, it's Jews and it's not people. God uses people, and He uses even an angel to preach the eternal gospel. And so, while angels don't preach in this time frame, nonetheless, they can preach, and we find them doing that specifically. Right now, what are they doing? Well, 1 Corinthians 11.10 says they're learning. And every time we gather for worship, the Bible teaches there are angels present who are watching us worship. They are learning from us. So if you remember in verses 6 through 11, we heard the fact that these angels uh, pronounce God's statement of judgment on the earth. The first angel in verses 6 and 7 preached an eternal gospel. 
and literally the great commission in terms of the gospel going to the whole world will be fulfilled during this time through the two witnesses, through the 144,000, through people who are saved through their ministry and through this angel such that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are one to the Lord Jesus. So the first angel is then finished, and as soon as he is finished, a second angel steps up. And so beginning in verse 8, if you look down in your text, the second angel appears and he pronounces God's judgment on Babylon. Babylon is fallen. It's the obituary of Babylon, and it's what linguists call a prophetic preterite. In other words, it's written as if it has already happened. And sometimes in the Old Testament, sometimes in the New, God will put a prophecy in the past tense to assure you of the certainty of it being done. And so he just briefly introduces us again to this place called Babylon. Well, when we come to chapters 17 and 18, my guess is we'll probably spend six or seven messages just on those two chapters as we witness the fall of religious and commercial Babylon. And so he says, fallen, fallen, twice over to underscore its guaranteed judgment. And by the way, this is the first time in Revelation that Babylon is mentioned. And then the third angel preaches to warn the multitudes once again to escape the wrath of God. Look at verse 9. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast, the Antichrist, in his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. So this verse tells us about a horrible place called hell. And once again, we're just introduced to it, but he is going to expound on it in great detail as we move through the book. And let me just say parenthetically, if you're here today and you're not saved and you die lost and go to hell, it will be no one's fault but yours. Because God has provided a way of escape. The God who has set the penalty paid the penalty through a substitute. But then, of course, we come to verse 12. And what a contrast as we studied last time. For this third angel, he's still preaching. And like any good preacher, he not only mentions God's wrath, he mentions God's grace. And so having described for us the hellish side of death, now, if you remember, in verses 12 and 13, he describes the heavenly side of death. What awaits the sinner is ghoulish. What awaits the saint is absolutely glorious. And so having described the judgment of the wicked, now he describes the demonstration of God's grace on the righteous, those who've been saved by grace. In essence, he's saying, look, you've seen the wicked ones. Now you're going to see the righteous ones. And he shows us the difference between them and those who have truly, genuinely been converted and had a birth from above. In essence, God is saying, you have seen the wicked ones. Now take a look at my children who persevere, a mark of conversion, who keep my commandments, a fruit of conversion, who die rightly related to me, to whom the Spirit of God says at their death, yes, 
Now, the Spirit of God, of course, speaks all the way from the Bible, from Genesis 1-1 to the last word of the Revelation. But you never hear His voice except on a couple of occasions. And here He says one word, and when we come to the last chapter, He'll say just a couple of words. But it's the Spirit of God, if you're saved, who brought you into a right relationship with the Lord. No man can come to the Father unless the Father dwell, uh, draws Him. And so the Spirit is the one in the Godhead that the Father uses to draw you. He convicted you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He awakened a dead heart so you could see the gospel. And then as an act of your will, you chose to believe. And the moment you believed, He made you His temple. You've become a temple of the Holy Spirit. He placed the Spirit in you. He has borne witness to your spirit, if you've been born again, that there's something different on the inside conversion has taken place. He's borne witness with you that you've become a child of God. He's become your deposit, your guarantee. He has sealed you for the day of redemption that what God started, He will complete. He gifts you so you can serve the body of Christ. He comforts you in hard times. He helps you in difficult circumstances. He illumines the Word of God as He teaches you. And finally at death, He says, yes! And He takes you home to glory because His work is finished. The Spirit's love who has been poured out in our hearts, you hear His divine expression of that love when He says, yes. And that brings us to where we are today. You can see the title of the message on your outline if you're taking notes, is The Wrath of God on earth. And these verses today begin to reveal that the second coming of the Lord Jesus is totally different from his first coming. And if you're taking notes, I want to highlight three essential truths about the coming wrath of God. The first truth that John reveals and writes by the Spirit of God concerning God's wrath is that God's wrath is coming. It is coming. Now, he's going to give us a preview of that wrath. He's going to give us the big picture of this coming terrible wrath on earth, and then he's going to detail it in the next two chapters. Now, in the remaining verses here of chapter 14, he previews for us what's going to happen during the remainder of the tribulation period, and he refers to Christ's coming with two different harvests. He uses two different pictures. The first, found in verses in 14 to 16, is a harvest of grain. The second reaping is a harvest of grapes, found in verses 17 through 20. We're going to see this morning that the harvest of grain is an overview of the coming bowls of wrath. We'll be introduced to them in chapter 15, the shortest chapter in all of the Revelation. I'll just preach one sermon on that. And then many sermons when we come to chapter 16 is that wrath is unleashed. Then we will come in the second half of this paragraph to the harvest of grapes, which is an overview of the battle of Armageddon. And once again, he just previews it. But when we come to the 16th chapter and following, he's going to detail it to us. So both harvests, though, involve a sickle. They both involve a reaping, and both accounts will be later described in chapters 15 through 19. So God's wrath is coming, and I want you to note first that God's wrath is coming from Jesus. Notice verse 14, then I looked, 
And behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Now, one of the most recognizable figures of all time, I suppose, is one we call the Grim Reaper. Here's a picture of him. He's typically characterized as some kind of deathly figure wearing a robe. His face is usually entirely hidden. You always see in his hand a a sickle or a scythe. One poet describing him said, you can be a king or street sweeper, but everyone dances with the Grim Reaper. Now, most of the pictures I found were pretty gruesome and I thought almost frightening to children, but this one was a little more tame. I'm not sure what that little bunny rabbit is doing down there in the right corner, but in either case, the Grim Reaper is not just some cartoon character. He represents a biblical personality. He is truly revealed in Scripture. He is not hidden with some robe over his face. He is the one whom every eye will see and every tongue will confess to. Look at verse 14. His identity is absolutely unmistakable. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown and on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Now, we're told he comes not simply on a cloud. Notice it's articular. You might want to circle the article. He comes on the cloud. Now, the word cloud is an interesting study in and of itself. Sometimes it refers to literal clouds that God has created, but very often it's a reference to the Shekinah glory of God. It's a picture of the presence of God. And so there was a cloud-like structure during the day called the Shekinah as the children of Israel were led during the time of the wilderness. You can read of it in Exodus 13. The same cloud appeared to Moses when God gave him the law there on top of Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb in Exodus chapter 19. The cloud covered the Lord God when he came to meet Moses and the 70 elders that were chosen there in Numbers chapter 11. If you remember, the cloud, the Shekinah, filled the temple of God on the day of its dedication. And so in 1 Kings 8, we're told, it happened that when the priests came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. It was the same cloud that received the Lord Jesus up into heaven at his ascension as recorded in Acts 1. And it's the Shekinah glory that knocked over Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus when he is converted Uh, It's the same cloud that Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 24. And sometimes as you read of the cloud of God, sometimes it's described singularly or with a plural noun. Let me read Matthew chapter 24 and verse 30. Jesus said, And the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, And they will see the Son of Man, notice the change to capital letters, which not always, but most often, refers to an Old Testament quotation in the NAS. You will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. In other words, he is going to return one day to the earth, and men are going to see his divine radiance and brilliance 
Then I looked, John said, and behold, a white cloud. And sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Now, this is exactly what we see happening here in Revelation 14, 14, that Jesus spoke of on the Mount of Olives in Matthew 24 in verse 30. Here comes the judge, and he is coming with a sharp sickle, and he is coming to judge the world. Why? Because the Bible says all judgment has been given to the Son. Because we have planted and sown the seeds of rebellion, he is going to harvest the souls of lost people, because some have planted only the seeds of sin, because some have planted and sown only unbelief and hatred, Christ is going to come to harvest an unbelieving world. The Bible says, do not be deceived, for God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. And this world is headed for one who is coming with a crown on his head. And the word for crown is the Greek word Stephanus. That is the conqueror's crown, the victor's crown. Jesus is not coming in defeat. He is coming in great victory. He is termed in the revelation, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the identical title that is given of God the Father. Why are they both given the same title? Because to see the Son is to see the Father. And in John chapter 5, we read this in verse 22. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son so that they will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. You cannot say, well, I believe in God, but I don't believe in Jesus. If you do not believe in Jesus, then you do not honor the Son. He is coming. He is coming to execute wrath with the victor's crown on his head, and he will come with a sickle in his hand because he is a harvester. That's how he's pictured here. And I want to say today that you're going to meet Jesus, everyone within the sound of my voice. You will either meet him as your Savior or you will meet him as your judge, but indeed you will meet him. And notice here in verse 14, John says, he comes as a son of man. That's important because there are six angels through this chapter. And he's distinguishing this one who is coming from the angels that are mentioned. And he is affirming a truth that the Bible teaches that the Messiah is not only divine, but he is fully human. Now, in some of your Bibles, a son of man is capitalized. In other Bibles, it's lowercase. Now, understand in the manuscripts we have by which we interpret the Bible, all the manuscripts are either in all capitals or they are in all lowercase letters. There's no capital or lowercase letters in any of the manuscripts. They're either all one or all the other. And so the translator has to discern who is in view. Now, if you look in the margin of the NASB, if you have a, how many of you have a Bible with marginal notes? Raise your hand high. Good, most of you. If you don't have one, you should come to meet the pastor. You'll get one. It's very helpful to have some marginal notes because sometimes it gives you the literal rendering, and I'll note that when it's important. It may be a little wooden and it doesn't translate real smoothly, but sometimes it's very helpful, or sometimes it gives you an alternate reading. 
So you could capitalize it, or you could leave it lowercase simply to underscore that what is in view here is not an angel, but a real human. But if you know the book of Daniel and the four gospels, then you will know the title, a son of man, is one of the titles for the Messiah. Let me read to you Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. I kept looking, Daniel wrote, in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days, that's God the Father, and he was presented before him. Now, please understand that the term son of man, found only here in the Old Testament, is a messianic title for the coming of the Messiah, in that the description of the Messiah in the Bible is that he would not only be a human, but that he would be God, that he would be the God-man. And this title, Son of Man, describes his humility and his humanity, just like the Son of David distinctly describes his royalty. Messiah is going to be a Son of David. He's going to sit on David's throne, 2 Samuel 7, and then the Son of God underscores his deity. And of course, if you know Isaiah 9, 6, all three of them are brought together in a single prophecy. Let me refresh your mind with that. Isaiah said, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. That's his humanity. That's his title as son of man. And the government will rest on his shoulders. That speaks of his royalty. And he has not yet fulfilled that, but he will when he comes again. He will literally actually reign on the throne of David, the Bible says, for a thousand years. We'll study that later on in the Revelation. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. That underscores his deity. And so in in the mind of a first century Jew, understand? It's not true for the most part today, but in the mind of a first century Jew, to use either title was to affirm every title. How do I know that? Because it's clear not only from secular writings of the day, but more authoritatively, it is clear from what we read in the Bible. Do you remember on that occasion when Christ had been arrested in Caiaphas? puts him under oath, and he says, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And so when he asks, is he the Son of God, the Lord Jesus responds by saying, he is the Son of Man. And he does so in the next verse by quoting Daniel chapter 7. You have said it yourself, nevertheless, I tell you, Hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus claimed that he is the person, the Son of Man, mentioned in Daniel 7 by quoting that text. And because the high priest believed that the Son of Man was the Son of God, was the Son of David, he tore his robes and he said, you've blasphemed. Why? Because he was acknowledging and admitting that Jesus, whom he thought was only a man, was claiming to be the Messiah and therefore God in human flesh. So at the same descriptive words in Revelation chapter 1, we see these two portrayals of the Messiah. For instance, in, in Revelation 1-7 is pictured here. He's quoting Daniel, behold, he is coming with the clouds. 
And then if you remember in Revelation 1.13, the apostle John tells us, he saw one like a son of man. Again, you can capitalize it or you can leave it lowercase. It doesn't change a single thing. And he has a crown upon his brow because he is a victorious reigning king. And so the Lord Jesus, when he first comes, he says the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He owned nothing. But when he comes again, as pictured here in Revelation chapter 14, he comes with a crown on his head. He comes as a victorious king because he owns everything and the world will see it. And by the way, once again, in the margin, Son of Man is capitalized and that's important. Now, we're in this parenthetical section. And during this parenthetical section between 10 and 14, he is reviewing, as we've already seen, but now he's going to preview some events that he is going to detail for us. And again, when you study this section, it becomes obvious that the first coming of Christ is so different from the second coming, as this next slide reminds us. When he came the first time, he came as a Savior. He came to give us life on a cross that our sin might be paid for, that we might have a way of escape and be set free. But when he comes again, he does not come as a Savior. He comes as a judge. When Jesus came the first time, he came in humiliation. He came as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. But when he comes again, He comes in exaltation on the clouds in glory. He will come as a sovereign king. He came the first time as a sower of grace. When he comes again, he will be reaping in wrath. When he came the first time, he came in poverty to a cross. But when he comes the second time, he will come in majesty on a cloud. There'll be no tree for him to hang on but there'll be a throne for him to sit on. So what I'm wanting you to see here in verse 14 is that when Jesus comes back, he's not coming back in weakness. He's coming back in the Shekinah glory with the divine radiance of God. He is coming. Secondly, God's wrath is coming not only from Jesus, it's coming on time. It's coming on time. And verse 15 underscores that truth. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour has to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Another angel refers back to verse 9, making this angel the fourth of six angels in this chapter. I have them all circled here in my Bible in verse 6, 8, 9. First three angels proclaim the coming judgment, along with the fourth angel who is now coming to be a part of executing that judgment. And the Bible says, notice in this verse, he came out of the temple. We've already studied that the temple, the tabernacle, and the tabernacle is also in some places called the temple. It becomes a more permanent structure when it's not just a portable tent, but a fixed unit, a fixed building. But the terms are used interchangeably in the Bible. And we're told in the Bible that the tabernacle, the temple that God had Moses built was patterned after the one in heaven that there's a tabernacle in heaven. And Moses, in essence, had the blueprints when he came off of Mount Sinai, and that's how he designed the tabernacle the way that he did. Some of you were with me on one trip in Israel, and we went way down south in Israel. 
and we saw that tabernacle perfectly reproduced. It was absolutely amazing. And I want to tell you, every curtain, every ring, every pole, every piece of furniture had a message of prophecy behind it and what God would accomplish through His Son. So God had a divine pattern for it. And so this angel comes out of the heavenly temple, and he is coming to cleanse the earth. Notice he comes with a loud voice. It's authoritative, and he says, notice, put in your sickle and reap. Here's an angel serving the Lord Jesus. He goes and he does a survey of the earth and he says, it's time. Put in your sickle for the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Now, did the Lord Jesus need an angel to tell him that? Of course not. God sent the angel on a divine mission. Angels, again, they are learning. They are studying you today. I hope you're on good behavior. They're watching you. Do you know that? I hope you know that. They're learning from us today in this service. And this angel, no doubt, was told, look, this is what you look for. And when you come back, you tell us. And he comes back with the message. And I'm sure he came back with a deeper respect and knowledge of the justice and the wrath of God Almighty. But God didn't need an angel anymore. Then God needed an answer to to the question he asked Adam, where are you? Because God knows everything. He didn't need the angel any more than he needs me or you to share the gospel. Jesus said, the stones can cry out if he so chooses. So this angel, having learned, comes back. Look at verse 16. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, you may not realize this if you're new to the Bible, but what we're seeing pictured is the parable found in the gospel of the parable of the wheat and the tares. You'll remember how Jesus told of a farmer who went out and sowed seed in a field, and he expected a bountiful harvest, but his enemy came in and he sowed tares among the wheat. And of course, the, uh, the servants wanted to pull out the tares, but they said, no, you, in pulling out the tares, you might tear out the wheat and the process, just let them grow together. Now, a tear is actually a certain form of wheat called bearded darnel. I was in Israel one time and I showed people, this is bearded darnel. This is what it looks like. And they look very similar as they're growing, but when they come to the end of their growth cycle, the top of that bearded darnel turns black. In fact, the seeds in the bearded darnel were used in the first century, kind of like we use syrup of Icapac. If someone is taking in something that needs to get off their stomach, they would literally swallow it. It was almost like a poison that would make you throw up, whereas the real weed, it would just gold and brown actually would hang over. And so the Lord is going to come back and he's going to separate the saved from the lost, those who profess the Lord and say they are Christians and those who really possess the Lord and are Christians. Jesus tells us that when he interprets the parable for his disciples, notice, listen from Matthew 13, then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And for as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. 
So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So the Lord allows both to grow together until the time of the harvest when they, some are gathered and placed in the barn and others are gathered and burned at the end of the age in the lake of fire. And again, he's just introducing it to us, but he's going to expound on it far more in the book. Look at verse 15 now. We're told, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Circle that word, ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, this phrase, the earth was reaped, if you ponder its meaning, it's one of the most tragic statements in all of the Bible. Now, again, the details are going to be given to us in Revelation chapter 16. It will begin with terrible sores that will be covering men's bodies. Then the oceans will be filled with blood and all the sea life will die. Then all the rivers and springs likewise will become blood. Then the sun's heat will intensify and scorch the skin of men and then the world will be plunged into a time of darkness. And then finally, the Euphrates River will be dried up. And demons will lure the kings of this world up a dry riverbed to a place called Harmageddon, where the troops of the world will gather together to come against God's Messiah. But right now, the time is perfect. Why? Because the earth is ripe. And he uses a specific word for ripe that is describing wheat that is overripe, almost at the point of beginning to rot. So when God moves in with judgment, it's not a minute too late. He could have acted sooner, but he didn't. Sometimes people say, Pastor, I wish Jesus would come back. I wish he would too. And they say, well, why doesn't God do something? He is doing something. The world's not falling apart. It's coming together. He is orchestrating the events for the return of his son from heaven. But he hasn't come back yet because the time is not yet right. Now, it doesn't mean that he's not coming back to judge. He will. But he will come at just the right time. The fact that he comes with a sickle reminds us he is just. The fact that he waits until it is virtually overripe shows God's mercy, God's love, God's long-suffering. And so the Apostle John first warns us God's wrath is coming. It will come from Jesus, and it will come on time. Unless anyone be deluded, he goes on now in verses 17 to 19 to underscore that God's wrath is certain. And to accentuate the absolute certainty of this wrath, he first teaches us that God's wrath comes with divine authority. It comes with divine authority. Now we read in verse 17, and another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Now, in verses 14 through 16, we saw the imagery of grain. But now in verses 17 through 19, we see the imagery of grapes. 
The picture may change. The event is the same. And John is giving us another picture, again, to underscore how absolutely certain that this is going to happen. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven. This is angel number five. I've got five written in my Bible over this angel. And again, he comes out of the temple. Among other things, it reminds us he is coming from the throne room of God, and he is coming with absolute authority. And notice, too, that this angel comes with a sharp sickle that underscores the absolute severity of this judgment that is going to come. So the Lord sends out his angel with this sharp sickle because he, through angels, is going to differentiate the wheat from the tares. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, the Lord knows those who are his. I hope he knows you today. He knows you in a creative way, but does he know you in a born-again, blood-bought way? He wants to. And so with absolute authority and certainty, God will execute this judgment. Again, the Son uses angels to complete this judgment. Further in verse 18, emphasizing once again the authority, then another angel. That's number six. You might want to write that over him. Then another angel. The one who has power over fire came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. Now, if you remember in John 15, 1, Jesus described himself as the true vine, and those who know him are connected to him as branches. And if you remember in John 15, among other things, he describes those who have a superficial attachment to him, who are not really his own, and they are broken off and thrown into the fire and burned, and those who are rightly related to him, who have truly, genuinely been saved. Well, John, the same apostle who records John 15 for us, here writes of the vine of the earth. He's describing those who are not attached to the Lord Jesus, but to those who are attached to the Antichrist. And this sixth angel, if you remember, the one with fire at the altar, we met him all the way back in chapter 8. He is the one who has power over fire. Put out in the margin next to this verse, Revelation 8 and verse 7. You can go back and read it. And if you remember, this is the angel who is associated with those saints who are martyred during the time of the great tribulation. They believe on the Lord Jesus through the preaching of the 144,000 or the two witnesses up to this point, and they are martyred there in Revelation 8. And there they are in heaven, and they're pleading with God, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging the blood on those who dwell on the earth? And now the prayer of these martyrs that the Bible describes as smoke going up as a sweet aroma into the presence of God. Now their prayer is answered, for her grapes are ripe. And again, it's the same word. They're long overdue. They're ready to burst. And God's wrath breaks in. So it comes with divine authority out of the very throne room of God. But secondly, God's wrath also comes with decisive urgency. It's coming with decisive urgency. We read now in verse 19, So the angel swung his sickle to the earth, 
and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great wine press of the, of the great wine press of the wrath of God. By the way, angels, I think you know by now, do not simply function as servants sent out to render service, Hebrews 1 says, to those who will inherit salvation, but they also are ministers of God's judgment to an unbelieving world. And God's justice demands His wrath in that it be carried out in full payment. And this verse will underscore, among other things, the vindication of those tribulation saints, those who are abused and have, for the most part, their heads cut off, and really not just the tribulation saints, but the blood of all the martyrs from Abel to Zechariah, anyone who has given his life for Christ. And he uses imagery here of a wine press of the wrath of God. Some of you are with me in Nazareth, and that's one place we always go. We're going to, I think, seven or eight new places, God willing, on this next trip. But we're in Nazareth, and there was a actual first century wine press from the day of Christ. And people would stomp with their feet. The the grapes, unlike olives, would not go through a press because you want to do it with your feet because you don't want to crush the seed and ruin the the juice. And they would crush it, and they would go through a little trough, and then it would be gathered like in a big rock bowl beneath. It was all carved out of stone. And God is giving a picture here of the blood of God's saints that is going to be vindicated. And so here is this angel, and he swings his sickle. And this imagery of God's wrath like a wine press is used all the way through Scripture. For instance, in Isaiah 63, speaking of this same future time, I've trodden the wine trough alone. And from the peoples, there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. Likewise, Joel, speaking of this same future time frame, writes, Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. You might want to put out in the margin next to this verse in Revelation, Revelation 19, 15. Let me read that to you. From his mouth, this is Jesus coming back. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. This vineyard has produced the wrong kind of fruit, and now they meet God in his wrath. And these grapes are stomped, and they vividly picture the splattered blood of those innocent saints who are destroyed by the wicked ones of that day. Finally and quickly, God's wrath is coming. It is coming for certain. Finally, God's wrath, when it comes, it will indeed be complete. God's wrath is complete. And verse 20 underscores that truth. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Now, don't get lost in these two judgments, these two pictures of judgment. Remember, we're in this parenthetical section, 10 to 14, that reviews and also previews. He gives two different harvests to describe what is yet to unfold. And this judgment is describing 
not just physical death, but ultimately what will turn into eternal death in the lake of fire. The first harvest, the harvest of grain that we just studied in verses 14 through 16, that's going to unfold in the bold judgments. But then this second harvest, it's going to unfold in what we typically refer to as the battle of Armageddon. And that will usher in Christ's second coming from heaven, where he will finally rule and reign for a thousand years. Now, he's just previewing it here, and he's going to detail it in chapters 15 through 19. But for now, let's get a sneak preview of what, in a popular way, we call the Battle of Armageddon. Maybe the War of Armageddon or the Campaign of Armageddon would be better. And it's going to result in one huge judgment where hundreds of millions of people are slaughtered. And I learned from verse 20 two things, two truths about this coming judgment of wrath. One, that God's wrath runs deep. It runs deep. We're again told in verse 20, and the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles. Now, when we come to chapter 16, this battle will be detailed, and he'll hit it hard there, and he'll touch on it again. But let me just say for right now, in the traditional sense, there's no such thing as the Battle of Armageddon. In fact, there's no place called the Valley of Armageddon. Now, there is a place called Har Megiddo. Har means hill or mount, or sometimes it's called Mount Megiddo. It's 60 miles north of the city of Jerusalem. In fact, let's get a sneak preview, all right? You want a sneak preview? Say amen, all right? At least you're listening. Go to chapter 16, verse 12, just over a few pages. Chapter 16, verse 12, and listen to what God says about this coming time. We'll study it in great detail. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. This war is going to result in a slaughter that we're reading about here in Revelation 14. Now look at verse 16 of chapter 16. And they gathered them together to the place, which in Hebrew is called Ha-Megedon. Hundreds of millions of troops we're going to see are going to begin gathering at this place called Megiddo to form a march all the way to Jerusalem. And here you will find one of the most famous battlefields in all the world. And in a moment's time, hundreds of millions of these soldiers that are going to go against God's people, Israel, are going to be slaughtered. And so as we go back to chapter 14, there's going to be so much blood, the ground is going to be so soaked with human blood that the Bible says that the blood will be up to the horse's bridles. Now, if you've ever seen a group of horses run on a muddy field, you see that mud just kicked up by their hoofs all the way up to their bridles. What he is giving us here is a picture of ground that is so soaked with human blood that as the horses go through, the blood comes all the way up to their bridles. Now, we'll come to that 
But I want you to see that this wrath runs deep as given through this imagery, but also God's wrath runs wide. Let's read all of verse 20. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles. Notice, for a distance of 200 miles. Now, sometimes in even modern uh, advertisements for Israel, they'll say, come see Israel from Dan to Beersheba. That means from the top of Israel to the bottom of Israel. It's a distance of 200 miles. And that's how long this river of blood will be. It's a very sobering picture that God will walk over his enemies in the winepress of his wrath. They will not stand a chance that will be swept away in a moment. And their hatred against Israel on this occasion will result in a wholesale, unprecedented slaughter of human life. Now, interesting, God will spare the horses because God has compassion on animals, does he? We'll see that. Now, here's the Antichrist and his followers, and they come to the apex of hatred against Jesus. And they gather all the troops of the world, and they're deceived by these demon spirits to come as if they can somehow conquer the living God, and they're on a march to Jerusalem, and Jesus steps in. And it will ultimately translate, as we will see, from this earthly wrath to this eternal wrath. Now, this is not what God is just saying for the future. He is writing to seven churches that have poured over this manuscript, and thousands and millions of Christians have read the Revelation for nearly 2,000 years. This is also what God is saying to his people today. So how are we going to apply this text? Let me suggest a couple of applications as we close. Number one, do not think that people are getting away with their sin because God has not judged it yet. That's what a lot of people think. Oh, they're just getting away with it. But it is payday some way, someday. Just because he hasn't judged it yet doesn't mean that they're getting away with it. If you remember, God told Abraham on one occasion that he had not yet judged the Amorites. And God said to Abraham this. Let me read to you Genesis 15, 13. Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. God is giving Abraham a a brief timeline of future events. And then in verse 16 of chapter 15, he said, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. They're going to be in Egypt for 400 years. That's exactly how long they were down there. For the sin of the Amorites, he says, has not yet reached its full measure. Rather than immediately wipe out the Amorites, God gives them 400 years. God is giving them a chance to repent. And maybe some did repent during that 400 years. But by the time the 400 years are over, they are all confirmed wicked unbelievers. And some of the vile things they did, I don't even want to mention. They had not escaped God's notice any more than the Ninevites, who in the mercy of God, at least the first time, did repent. God had not forgotten. The Amorite in Abraham's day inhabited the promised land. They were the chief people among the Canaanites, and their iniquity had reached a boiling point, and God said, enough is enough, and it was over. But God was keeping track. 
He keeps a very fine art measure. And it was God's love and mercy and hesed that was allowing him to hold back his wrath. But here in the end of time, there's coming a day. God, all the way through the revelation, all these judgments that are coming on the earth, and God is giving man an opportunity to repent, to repent, to repent, to repent. And then finally, as we'll see in the 15th and 16th chapters, he'll say, in essence, enough is enough. It's time, Lord Jesus. So don't let the slowness of God's judgment fool you to think that God A, is not judging sin now because there's an expression of his wrath, Romans 1, that is coming on the earth. But don't let you, don't think for a moment that it's not going to come. God is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness, but is not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Second, we should take the Great Commission seriously and allow God to use us to warn men and women to flee the coming wrath. We need to take the Great Commission seriously. As you go, share the gospel. Preach the gospel to all creation. Win people to Jesus. Just ask yourself, and I can't answer it for you, but this week, the last seven days, through your little set of human eyes, did you look at anyone, a single person, with a sense of concern and compassion for where they might spend eternity. For some of us, the weeks turn into months and the months turn into years. And we don't even invite someone to church, much less share the gospel with them. Look, there's a horrible harvest of wrath that is coming. And there's one thing that we will not do in heaven that we do today. There's a lot of things we do today we'll do in heaven, but there's one thing we won't do. And there'll be no one to win to Christ in heaven. So don't get discouraged by the evil that is going. It seems with every month that goes by, it just seems to grow. And it's like, what's next? God is on his throne. But there's coming a time when that cup is going to be filled, the cup of iniquity, to the very brim, and it will overflow, and God will send his son back. Third and finally, today, the Bible teaches, is the day of salvation. Tomorrow may be too late for you. Your only hope is the shed blood of Christ. If you're here today and say, well, yeah, I'm pretty sure I'll go. I think I'll go to heaven, and you don't know. If the Spirit hasn't borne witness to you that you've become a child of God, that you are a blood-bought, born-again Christian, there's nothing more important than you can get fixed. You should come to meet the pastor. Or even better today, call on Jesus to save you. Today is a day. Tomorrow will be too late. And every time God who says today is today, the day, and we say, no, not today, God, later, not today, later, your heart doesn't get softer. It gets harder, and there can come a time when you will put the final callus on your heart where you cannot say yes to the spirit of truth. Every time you tell the spirit of truth who is poking at your heart to receive Jesus, no, you're telling him he's a liar and that he doesn't know what is best for you. 
And you can't come to Jesus apart from his help. Today is the day to be saved when you hear the message. Don't harden your heart. Why don't you put your faith, why don't you put your trust where God put your sin on Christ? Call on him and he will receive you today. Now, our Holy Father, we thank you today for the salvation that is offered to men. We know that that door will be shut for those who live in an age we call the church age, where the gospel is prevalent, where men have heard the gospel. Your word has revealed and made it clear to us that it's impossible to receive Jesus during the tribulation if we've heard it beforehand. But thank you for those millions who have never heard the gospel who will be saved during that time. But I pray today for someone within the sound of my voice that they would call upon the Lord Jesus in faith, that they would know that he paid it all, that they would say, Lord Jesus, save me. Now, Father, many have already crossed that line that are here today or sitting on one of our campuses or live streaming through the internet or our website or Facebook. And they know you and they love you. But maybe some of us, Father, as you know, have been a little bit apathetic. And you warned us that at the end of time that men's hearts would grow cold. Don't let us be a part of that mass of cold-hearted believers. Keep our hearts warm and tender and passionate for Jesus. Help us in this new week to care for someone's soul, to tell them about your son who has come. We thank you and love you, our Father, that someone cared enough to tell us. May we be good stewards of your gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing a hymn of invitation this morning. We do it every Sunday. You say, what for, Pastor? To give people a chance to publicly stand with Jesus. Listen, if you've never publicly made a stance for Christ, that's a first step after conversion. And that's why we ask people to leave their seat and come to this front row. And they're coming and saying, I'm not ashamed of Jesus. And I want to invite somebody, you, to leave your seat and to come. Jesus said, if it's real in here, you won't be ashamed outside here. You'll be willing to confess him before men. We saw that confession by someone, a dear sister from our Bluffton campus who was just baptized. Baptism is not after salvation. If you've not had believer's baptism, it's an act of obedience. Maybe you're saved and baptized, but you need a church. We need you, and if you want to come and join with us and make a difference for the kingdom, Now's your chance. So Matt's going to lead us. Some of us are going to sing this prayer. This song is a prayer, and I want you to do that. It's powerful words that relate so well to the text. We didn't even plan it, but God put it in his heart as the invitational today. Some of us need to sing it as a prayer, but some of us need to put some feet to that prayer and meet me here. You may be in the Bluffton campus or the Graniteville campus, and you have a public decision to make. You leave your seat there as well and come forward. Matt, lead us. Would you come now?